You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. All right. So, uh, okay, here we are for the final Sunday gathering of 2021. And uh, we're going to be in the book of Philippians again for the last few months. Uh, I've been preaching my way through the book of Philippians and uh, it's taken a little bit longer than I thought it was going to. It was originally going to be a couple of sermons, sort of probably around September-ish, but it's uh, elongated because it turns out, well, Philippians is really good. Surprise, surprise, Scripture's got things to say. Uh, so it's been good fun doing this. Uh, the, this week, uh, it's just going to be a short a uh, short look at Philippians chapter 4. Um, I had intended to do a little bit more on Philippians 4, but unfortunately I was poorly the other week, uh, not with COVID. Um, I had the PCR test and everything, negative. It's like scant consolation when you're still coughing your guts up. It was like, great. Um, but the elders were very merciful and gave me a Sunday off preaching uh, the other week, which was, which was lovely. So it kind of gave me a bit of a chance to recuperate. But it does mean they were a little bit squeezed in terms of looking at Philippians 4. But I think, actually, in the light of what's happened this morning in terms of our worship and things that have been shared, I think clearly God is at work directing things, speaking certain things, shaping us in certain ways. And so it's, it, it's always a surprise, but never a surprise when you find that God is doing more behind your back than in front of your face. So, uh, so we're going to be looking at a few verses from the start of Philippians 4, and this will be our last visit with Philippians, probably for a while, but who knows? We'll see what happens next year. So Philippians 4, I'm going to read from verses 4 to 7. Paul writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Very apt passage, isn't it? for this particular season that we're in. Uh, There's so much that we could talk about. There's so much that we could draw out of this passage. There's so much to say, perhaps, about worry and anxiety. Uh, It's interesting to notice that it begins with a command and it ends with a promise. And we could reflect theologically on the nature of uh, life with God, living between command and promise, and what that all looks like. But I don't want to do any of that because there's one thing that leapt out to me as I prepared this week, and it's this, simply these words, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Thanks for repeating yourself, Paul. That's kind of helpful. Rejoice is one of Paul's favorite words, apparently, because even in the book of Philippians, the word shows up seven times. Safe to say that he likes it. Sometimes Paul uses the word to describe something that he's doing or something that he has done. I rejoiced, or now I do rejoice in this. Sometimes, like here in Philippians 4, verse 4, it's a commandment, an imperative, an exhortation. And here, particularly, it's plural. Greek has singular 
imperatives and plural ones. The singular one, obviously, is to one person. The plural is to a whole body of people. And so here, in Philippians 4, Paul writes to a whole church and commands, Rejoice in the Lord! Again, I will say, rejoice! And every single person in the church is gathered up in that command to the corporate body, and every single person is addressed as an individual person within that. So there's no real hiding place at all this morning from Scripture's command to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to rejoice in the Lord always. Let me say it again. Rejoice. It's a command of Scripture. Now, the fact that this is a commandment and not advice or a guideline you know, sometimes people use that terrible acronym and they talk about the Bible. You know, this is what the Bible is, basic instructions before leaving earth. B-I-B-L-E. It's none of that. It's a divine commandment to rejoice in the Lord. But commandments can be a struggle for us. We don't like being commanded to do things very much. But think about it. As biblical commandments go, rejoice in the Lord is not exactly an onerous one, is it? It's not really even a negative one. It's not like, do not murder. It's not a do not commandment. It's not even a commandment that needs careful interpretation or unpacking like, don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Uh, <laughs> all right, drat, what am I going to do with those three gallons of milk? <laughs> Does it work to do it in the slow cooker with cherry coke? I don't know. Um, It's not an onerous commandment. So why might we find it difficult? Why would we find this hard? Well, there's all kinds of reasons why a command to rejoice always in the Lord doesn't necessarily land easily with us. Perhaps the most obvious one is that our lived experience doesn't always lend itself easily to rejoicing in the Lord. Put simply, it can be hard work to rejoice when our lives are not quite the way that we would like them to be. It can make rejoicing that little bit harder. Particularly when a command comes along and says, Rejoice! But... uh, uh, The problem is, though, honestly... When are our lives ever the way that we really want them to be? And does a perceived absence of wholeness, goodness, whatever it might be in our heads that makes the good life, does a perceived absence of that mean that rejoicing in the Lord must therefore be deferred until such a time as our lives are just so? Rejoice in the Lord, commands the scripture. Well, wait a minute, we say. Now, I imagine that in the cold, hard light of day, there are not very many of us, if any of us at all, actually, who would really think like that. None of us, I don't think, would say, well, rejoicing the Lord, we'll see. Nevertheless, if we were all honest with God, with ourselves and with one another, we might admit that on the odd occasion, we find it easier to defer our rejoicing. 
And yet the command still stands there in Scripture. Rejoice always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Well, perhaps you're a little bit like me, and you're struggling with this command because, frankly, you're not doing too well at rejoicing in the Lord at the moment. Perhaps you're not finding it particularly easy to do. At least you get to rejoice in the fact that you don't have to preach a sermon on rejoicing in the Lord when you don't feel like you're doing great at rejoicing in the Lord. Be glad for that. And you might also want to rejoice, probably more importantly, that through the weakness and the imperfection of the people he calls to lead and teach the church, the Holy Spirit may strengthen, help, comfort, and encourage you in all of your weakness and imperfection. There's something to rejoice in. Now, two things have occurred to me as I've been thinking through this verse in my preparation this week. And the first thing is that the commandment to rejoice always holds me to account because it is a commandment. It holds me to account. Imagine what it would feel like, or imagine the lived experience for Christians if the scripture said, rejoice in the Lord, if you want to, or rejoice in the Lord, when it suits. Rejoice in the Lord, when you've got the time. Rejoice in the Lord, so long as everything else is okay. But no, the command holds me to account. So that's the first thing. What's the second thing? Well, the second thing is this. Despite my discomfort at being held to account by a command, the fact that it does is actually very good news indeed. Let me try and help you to see why. Being held to account by a command to rejoice in the Lord always is very good news indeed because of what is at stake in rejoicing in the Lord. Now at this point I should point out to you that rejoice in the Lord always is not the same as saying be happy. A command to rejoice in the Lord always is not the same as saying humans should just be happy all the time. That is not the same thing. So let's just be clear about that. So what is at stake then in rejoicing in the Lord? Well, let's make sure that we notice that the scripture doesn't just say rejoice always, which could be empty and could be somehow shallow, could be just piety, but the scripture says rejoice in the Lord always. The difference is in the object of your rejoicing. And by that I mean the thing to which your rejoicing is directed. Uh, what you aim at with your rejoicing. And it's a monumentally important difference as it turns out. We could talk for ages and ages and ages this morning about how it doesn't work to simply say rejoice always but I'd rather focus on the more positive aspect of what it actually does mean 
And what is at stake in the command to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, I want to give us something to help us get an angle on this. So I'm going to draw on on an ancient resource that is called the Westminster Catechism. You don't need to remember that. This is just where it comes from. The Westminster Catechism was published in the mid-17th century, I think primarily as like a a, a training thing for new believers, possibly pre-baptism. Phil probably knows more about this than I do. Uh, And in the Westminster Catechism, there is one of the articles poses the question, what is the chief end of humanity? What's the the purpose? Why are we here? What's the chief end of humanity? And it gives the answer as this. Humanity's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I mean, that's pretty good. What's the chief end of humanity? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Fast forward a few centuries to the mid-1980s and an American pastor whom some of you would have heard of, John Piper, produced a book called Desiring God. And in that book, Piper tweaked the Westminster Confession, if such a thing is permissible, I mean, it's not scripture, um, but still, bold move, he tweaked the Westminster Confession. And Piper said, well, humanity's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's a very small but very important tweak. Westminster Confession Catechism, what is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper, what's the chief end of humanity? Glorify God by enjoying him forever. Now, Piper qualified his tweak of the Westminster Catechism by saying this, God is most glorified in us when we are the most satisfied in him. Now, what has all of this got to do with Philippians 4, verse 4? That's a good question. I want to make a strong case this morning that the command to rejoice in the Lord always is nothing more and nothing less than a command to seek God's glory by seeking your highest joy in him. And I want you to see and to be persuaded that this command is potentially the kindest word in all of Scripture. Potentially, arguably. It's at least extraordinarily kind, if not the kindest command in all of Scripture. You see, when you obey this command to rejoice in the Lord always, you will be far better equipped to see all of the changing circumstances of your fragile existence in the light of God's eternal worth. You will be able to give thanks for the good that you receive, but you won't make an idol out of the good that you receive. Nor will you be seduced into assuming that God's worth only stretches so far as what you with your three-pound fallen brain, are able to perceive as the good. When God himself is the object of our rejoicing, the more that we rejoice in him, the more our hearts are gladdened in him, 
the more glory he gets because our hearts are more satisfied in him. Not just in what he gives, not just in what he provides, not just in a few temporal blessings that might be good for three score years and ten but aren't actually God. The command is to rejoice in the Lord, to rejoice in God. You'll be able to rejoice in the Lord when all around falls to pieces, burns to ashes, crumbles to dust, because you'll be persuaded that it's God himself who is your highest joy, and that nothing upon nothing, neither height, depth, angels, demons, hunger, homelessness, nor anything else in all creation, nothing can wrestle you out of his hand, and nothing can separate you from his love in the Lord Jesus. You will be able to say, along with C.S. Lewis, that the one who has God and everything else has no more than the one who has God only. For that reason, I contend again that this is one of the kindest utterances in Scripture. But you've got to be persuaded. You've got to be persuaded. I'll be completely honest with you. Sometimes the scourge of my life as a teacher pastor is the comment, yeah, I know. Because I think nine times out of ten, yeah, I know, really means that I don't really know. And you know how I know that yeah, I know means I don't really know? It's because when you say yeah, I know, it, you, you're not actually doing it. It doesn't look like you know or feel like you know. Because if you knew, then it would be different. And so yeah, I know is like the get out of jail free card for not being pressed any harder on something because it's a little bit awkward. You've got to be persuaded. And that's part of my job. It's why Paul repeats himself, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice. It's why he says it seven times. He talks about rejoicing in Philippians. Because Paul knows you've got to be persuaded. Your heart needs to be tenderized, pummeled, beaten, softened, squeezed, massaged, marinated juggled with, lightly sautéed, whatever. You have to be persuaded. So let me try and help you be persuaded. God gives a divine command to us to rejoice in him. He hasn't left it up to us to stumble upon his glory and worth as our deepest joy. That's why it's a command. He loves you and he wants to be your deepest joy. And he knows that the only way that he can be your deepest joy in experience and lived experience is if you rejoice in him. But if you say, yeah, I know, but you don't actually rejoice in him, how will he ever experientially be your highest joy? 
God in his utter grace and immeasurable kindness gives a divine command that we find our joy in him because he wants you to be delighted in him because it's good for you and it gives glory to him. You need to be persuaded. It's like the psalm that says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste, it's visceral. It's not just all academic in the head. God did not make us brains on sticks. That's what modern philosophy has bequeathed to us. The idea that we are cognitive beings, computers walking around. We're not. We're delighting, loving, passionate, exuberant beings. And so the scripture commands us to find our highest joy in the source of all joy, in God. You see, God does it so that he may gain the more glory because it glorifies God the more when we delight in him. Think about it. God is holding you to account about your joy. Do you see? He's holding you to account about your deepest joy. He's not just telling you what to do, even though you jolly well need to be told what to do, but what we need to do is to obey the command so that we get the joy and he gets the glory. Because God is ultimately committed to his own glory, and if Piper is right about God being most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, then he must also be committed to your joy. That's logic. If, he, if he's glorified most in your delight in him, then he's passionate about his glory and he's passionate about your joy because your joy is his glory. We're not just talking about happiness. We're not just talking about hey, clappy, clappy, I could sing unending songs while we're thinking about the shopping or something else or whatever. We're talking about a rich seam of divine life and truth. We're talking about mercy that flows like a river. I spend quite a lot of time by rivers fishing. Have you seen a river flow? Scarily powerful. Sometimes I fish the River Derwent at House and Bridge, 16 feet deep in places. Once or twice I've nearly gone in. Blimey. Scary. With boots on. See ya. It flows. It's powerful. It's not like having a shower. It sweeps you along. The weight of the glory of God and his delight, his fierce passion for God, and his fierce passion that you may find your delight in his fierce passion for his glory, catches you up, sweeps you along, carries you with it. It's a deeply compassionate commandment. 
And so what we have in the command then is about as far removed as empty piety as it's possible to get. It's a serious divine summons holding us to account by commanding us to glorify the Lord and to find our everlasting joy in him. But there's a question that lingers and remains, isn't there? I need to find the right slide. There it is. How? How? It occurred to me again this week, preparing how. Rejoice in the Lord always. Okay, but, but how? How do you do that? The great Victorian preacher, Charles H. Spurgeon, said something like, I I must at all costs develop an intimacy with the Lord through spiritual disciplines. Not, Not because that's the basis for my peace. That can only ever be the blood of Jesus. But, he said, it will be the means of my enjoying that peace. And that could just be sermon over. (laughs) how do you do it you hammer the spiritual disciplines as hard as you possibly can not because the disciplines themselves provide the joy but the spiritual disciplines provide the context where you might throw yourself into the river which is the fierce delight of God in God's self so that he gets the glory, and so that you may get the joy. How might that work? Well, at risk of putting myself forward as the model to be copied, I could tell you a little bit about what I try and do, having told you that I'm not really very good at it at present. I find first thing in the morning at 10 past, quarter past six, when the alarm goes off, and I have to get up and walk the dog, and it's dark, and it's sort of misly outside, that doesn't provoke in me a joy-filled response. It provokes in me a deeply guttural, and so what do I do? Well, what do I do? I wake up and I think, well, okay, and I try and start to think about God. I try and start to push to the side those kind of fleeting, shadowy thoughts that come with like half dream, half reality, part anxiety about the day, part, oh, what did I do? Why did I eat that last night? Whatever it might be. And I try and fight my way into a place where God is not just an idea, but a lived reality. And that takes the form at the moment of putting in the earbuds I got for my birthday and putting on a Lou Fellingham album because she's joy-filled and you might find that annoying she's joyous because people who aren't joyous find joyous people annoying you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I need that and so I put it on because it's I, I can't find I mean I'm walking the dog uh, who, if you've got a dog and you walk the dog and you try and pray out loud when you're walking the dog it's so embarrassing you turn a corner Lord Jesus thank you so much key lad I'm like, oh morning <laughs> <laughs> well thank you Lord Jesus for the depths of your love thank you for your mercy thank you <laughs> fragrance of the Lord <laughs> so I, I need something I need some truth, something outside of me and my stupid brain to try and fire joy. 
like to bring God front and center. And then I get home and I have a like ritual, kind of, I sort of live a bit ritualistically. I, I, I have a ritual, I get the AeroPress, I make a coffee and I go in the study. And at the moment, I, I, use, I use the Church of England's daily worship app. And that's how I start prayer. Often that is prayer. It's praying with the church. Some people have a real problem about these kinds of things. Oh, it's by other people's words. Well, it's all other people's words. You didn't invent a vocabulary. What are you talking about? And you should be praying scriptural prayers anyway. You didn't make those words up. And so I, like, that's brilliant because I'm not that creative at sort of seven in the morning, even with half a cup of coffee. So, so I use these words and I pray psalms and I read scriptures and there's liturgy and I pray the Lord's Prayer. And if I can, I'll sort of mumble out a few prayers for the day. You know, I, I, it's, it's putting yourself in a place where the reality of God and the joy of God can actually be something that goes from being a possibility cognitively to something where my heart is beginning to warm. You know, the pan's sizzling. How can I persuade you more? Paul planted the church in Philippians. Some of you know that already. Philippians, the church in Philippi, he pulled the author of the letter, he planted this church. He was there with Silas, preaching the gospel, and Acts chapter 16 sorry, was, is where we can learn about Paul planting the church in Philippi. Luke gives us a sort of potted history of it. But he also tells us that Luke and Silas, Paul and Silas got beaten to within an inch of their lives in Philippi for preaching the gospel, and then thrown into the deepest, darkest, jungliest Jungle prison cell. So I got, got a little bit of David Walliams there. <laughs> Another area of vocabulary with a nine-year-old boy. Paul and Silas get thrown in prison. And then Luke tells us that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. <laughs> uh, this is always like one of those, man... Like you've, you've just been beaten up savagely. You know, it's not like some scally from Acom giving you a little bit of a kick and a nick in your phone. We're talking about clubs. We're talking about a gang. We're talking about some like angry mob and possibly with rocks. Beaten up and then chucked into a cell. And then at midnight, what are you doing? Oh my goodness, I've got to quit. I've had enough. God, I, I don't believe in you anymore. They're singing hymns and psalms to God. Paul was a man who smoked what he sold. Rejoiced in the Lord always was no empty piece of rhetoric. He did it. He was persuaded why should I be afraid of men who can kill the body but not the soul? Hallelujah. I love you, Lord. I don't know what, who knows what him and Silas sang, but I bet it was, I bet it was profound and deep and joy. So pray, sing, read, journal, Walk and turn the beauty that you see around you into praises to God. Weep when life is rubbish. 
but weep with joy that God is making all things new. Weep with joy when things go well and be glad that that is just a foretaste of the fullness and the glory and the greatness that will be yours at his appearing. Celebrate with all your heart every good thing. Repent of cynicism. You know, in some ways it's impossible to avoid a bit of cynicism. But don't be dominated by cynicism. That's just ugly. You know, it's not the gospel according to Monty Python or Blackadder or... (laughs) Sorry, I look at you because I know that you know those kind of references. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice. And I want you to know something. So come to an end, finally. You don't need to pretend to God that you know what you're doing. He's not fooled by your piety. Oh, no, 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 no. Bit silly to think that God would be fooled by anything, but especially not your piety. You don't need to be Ned Flanders. Vacuous, empty religiosity. If you want to be a person who is persuaded that rejoicing in the Lord always is for the glory of God primarily and for your highest joy in him secondarily, then you need to tell him that you want to be a person who rejoices in the Lord always. Don't lie to him by by omission. Tell him, God, I suck at this. Help me. Thank you that your command holds me to account. Help me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. See, this is, I'm not, this is not just a model. This is, I would pray like this. And, and as a pastor, I want you to pray like this too. God, I'm rubbish at this. Help me. I believe you. I believe that your joy is my highest worth, but I don't believe enough because I find joy in all kinds of other things. And I know that my heart is deceitful. Have mercy. Come to me in your love. Direct my heart into rejoicing in you. If you think you are good at it, you're probably not as good as you think you are. And when you do ask him for help, wait for a bit. Create space. I want you to know that it's very hard to rejoice always in the Lord in this way, doing spirituality on the hop. You know, oh, it's all in a rush this morning. Didn't get up in time. Just got to brush my teeth. Quick, two minutes on the bus, Lord, help. Amen. That's fine. Everybody has moments like that. But that can't sustain you in rejoicing in the Lord always. That, That can't get you to a place where anxiety and cares of the world and freaking out about this, that, and other is going to dominate your life. It can't. Make space to say, God, I'm rubbish at this. I want to rejoice. Help me. And then wait and receive and then rejoice and then repeat. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. 
Father, as we draw to a close this morning, and before we sing one more song, and before we break bread, we thank you that your love for us extends beyond advice and basic instructions before leaving earth, but your kindness and compassion for us comes to us in a divine command to find our deepest joy in you. (laughs) Oh God, I pray that by your spirit you would persuade us in our hearts so very deeply that our lives would be radicalized by this truth and that our lives would be turned upside down by the joy of the Lord and the glory of God. Help us in our weakness. You know that we are bad at this. Help us. Lord, make us to sit down. Lord, thank you that psalm says, you make me to sit down by still waters. Lord, we need you to make us. We need you to tell us to shut up and sit down and receive. Please, God, help us that we might find out all in you, that our lives would be sustained by the glory of God and delight in that, and that our lives would not be dependent on just an occasional squawk for help in the midst of everything else. God, deepen us, quarry us deeply that we might be a people who rejoice always in you. Amen.